Today, we're talking with Tiffany Shorter. She's currently a director of change management and communications at Avi Pharmaceuticals, and she had a lot to share with us about her journey. From being open to receiving opportunities and support when they present themselves, to making sure that your values and vision are aligned with the moves you're making to drive your career, Tiffany lets us in on the wisdom of regularly asking ourselves, what are you going to do next? I hope you find something here to support you on your journey as she shares what she'd tell herself from where she is today. Welcome to I'd Tell Myself, where we dive into the individual journeys people have taken to professional success and share some of the lessons that they've learned along the way. I'm your host, Danielle Frankel. I've long believed that there are many ways to learn the important lessons in life. And while some lessons are only gained through personal experience, others can be learned less painfully from those ahead of us on their own journey. I hope you'll find something here to support you as we ask these individuals what they tell themselves from where they now sit. Welcome, and thanks for joining us. So let's start with something super simple. Who are you? What's your name? What's your title? What's your job? What do you do? So my name is Tiffany Shorter. I am a director for change management and communications at Abby, a pharmaceutical company here in northern Chicago. So the northern suburbs of Chicago. I do change management mostly, but some communication. <laughs> change management always includes some BUF communications, but I kind of get wrapped into culture work. I get wrapped into change management for big projects, transformation. I lead a bunch of project managers who also do change management or who are trying to build their skill set in change management. Abby is known for Humira, Skyrizi, all these phenomenal drugs that are doing well in the market. So it's a a whole different world for me coming from where I came from. But it's been good. I told somebody the other day. I normally get that three-year itch and I'd be like, oh, I got to go to the next thing. And I'm not itching and I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> That's awesome. I have so <laughs> many questions to follow that. Okay. First, simple, basic one, because you mentioned it. What did you do before? So how is this different from what you did before? What does your path kind of look like? But yeah, my path has been all over the board, actually. So my career is a little bit different than that I actually came into change management right out of grad school. And I don't think that is common because normally what happens is people go and they work and they do things and then they kind of fall into a change management space. And as I was coming out of grad school, I had an internship with Deloitte. So I worked with Deloitte. I did an internship over the summertime. I worked for Amtrak and then a local energy company in Jackson, Michigan area. And I got to see ERP projects and got to work on change management for those. And so then I actually went and started working and started being a change management specialist. I would say I worked for State Farm for about four years in Bloomington, Illinois. I tell people all the time it was the best job I had and the best project I ever worked on. And if I could just pick Bloomington up and put it in Chicago, it would have been perfect. But I ended up leaving State Farm because it was in Bloomington, Illinois. And I went back to consulting and came to PwC and hence where I met you and worked on tons of different projects, most of which I feel like was again, all over the board from different kinds of clients and different solutions. But for the most part, they were all either big transformation projects, technology projects, process projects, so to say. Abby is a very regulated business, is 
a whole different world. Anything that has to do with medical, anything is just different. And I remember that space in PwC and I remember people being like, oh, I'm in the the healthcare practice. And we were always like, what? Okay, whatever, right? Like, I don't know what you're doing different over there, but all right. And now that I'm in healthcare somewhat, I'm like, oh, I understand why it was its own thing and I understand why it had its own nuances. So anyways, PwC, I was there for about four or five years. And then I went and moved to Boston because somebody thought that was a good idea. I'm still trying to figure out who. I worked for Harvard as a senior change manager across all of their IT organization. I'm supporting some of their bigger initiatives and again, trying to build change management as a discipline within their organization. And the only reason I left Harvard was because I moved back to Chicago. And when I moved back to Chicago, I I went back to Deloitte and I thought that my career was literally going full circle. And I was like, I'm going to start my, I'm in my career where I started my career. And it didn't actually turn out to be that way. It was a good experience. I was internally at this point and doing change management still and still trying to build a capability and still trying to help people to understand how to do change management. And in this case, it was HR folks. So it was all HR professionals, whether or not it was leaders in HR or just your normal HR generalist. But that job didn't work out for me for multiple reasons. And I ended up leaving and coming to AbbVie. And the things that I have gotten to do at AbbVie have just been a great experience across the board. Again, it's been a big learning shift to learn pharma, to learn development. So I'm in the research and development part of the business. So to learn how a drug is developed and how it goes through that life cycle It takes about 10 years for a drug to go through the life cycle and learning about clinical trials and just piecing together all the things you see on TV, all the things you hear and just it making sense in real life. And it's just been a great learning experience and a great opportunity to meet really smart people, people who are dedicated to something and people who have a passion behind what they're doing because they know what it does for patients across the world. So it really does feel like, and this is probably going to be bad, but I feel like some of the things I've done in the past have really been for companies. And it has. It's been for that company to make money, for that company to sell something. And it's not like AbbVie isn't selling something, but what we're selling is a solution or a cure to something that somebody is dealing with. And we're trying to make their lives better, whether whether or not they have cancer or whether or not they're dealing with rheumatoid arthritis. So something that people are are dealing with on a day-to-day basis, we're trying to heal them. And I think it's something to be said about that. Do you find that you have a sense of, I mean, it sounds like you're talking about feeling like there's a sense of purpose in the work that you do, like you're serving something. It absolutely is. And you probably don't even know this about me, but when I was in high school, I wanted to be obstetrician gynecologist. So I, I really did for a long period of time, thought I was going to be a doctor. I know that. I did not know that at all. <laughs> I did. I thought I was going to be a doctor. And I didn't go down that path because I felt like the schooling that was associated with it was too long. And I was like, there's too many other things that I could be doing. And then I went down the path of being a psychiatrist. And I was like, oh, I'm not the kind of person who can't take somebody else's problems on. Like, I always want to help somebody to solve something. And that was my clients would stay with me. And so I realized early that I couldn't go down that path either because I would be too inundated with other people's stuff. So I was like, 
oh, well, what about HR? What about industrial organizational psychology? And that's kind of how I came to where I am today. Abby feels very much, it feels like my connection to the math and science that I used to love and my connection to the medical industry that I thought I would be a part of. And I am just in a different way. It's exactly what you said earlier around, I tell myself, and I would tell myself is not one way to get there. It's not just one road or one path. And again, I remember being in college and people saying, oh, you should go into pharma. And all I thought pharma was sales. Like to me, that was the only job you were going to have in pharma was pharma sales. And I was like, I'm not a salesperson because if you tell me no, just I'm going to walk away and I'm going to go on by my business. I'm probably not a good salesperson. And so pharma never was a space of, of me thinking about I could have a job there. Actually, until I got the job at Harvard, because there was a job at Biogen in Cambridge that I was really interested in before I took the job with Harvard. And again, it was that connection where I felt like Biogen at the time was actually working on a lot of medical things for the African-American community. So I was like, oh, this is perfect. Like I not only get to work for a company that's doing something good, they're doing something for the people who look and feel like me. Oh, yeah, right. And that didn't pan out, but it, it always stayed in the back of my head as an opportunity. Nice. I love that connection and that the way we come full circle. And sometimes it's not about coming full circle on the job itself, but around like the overall purpose and direction of what that work would be. So maybe mm -hmm. you're not a doctor, but you're still very much involved now in a medical way and in a way that really serves people, makes a difference in their lives. Yeah, this is very petty for lack of better words but <laughs> when I wanted to be a doctor okay so I grew up watching the Cosby show so I always saw Bill Cosby when he had on his white suit coat he was dressed underneath like he had on business clothes and so I always saw myself as the doctor who was going to have on the nice dress and I have on my lab coat and I was like oh this is going to be perfect right and then when I moved into that psychiatrist space I was like well I can still wear my business clothes. I just want <laughs> the coat. <laughs> and so then when I was like, well, I'm not going to be a psychiatrist. I was like, I still got to do something where I can wear my business clothes, but help people. So look at me now, wearing my business clothes and helping people. <laughs> nice. Do you ever get to wear a lab coat when you're wandering around R&D? <laughs> I think I may ask somebody for one. I'll get my name put on it myself. Absolutely. I'll get a, pa a little patch made for you. I'll send it your way and iron it on. Excellent. Yeah. I love it. Okay. So, gosh, there's so many directions I want to go in with that. And I didn't know that about you and wanting to be a doctor. So that's super interesting. Well, I'm curious. You, you said that you started, you sort of talked about how, the path that you led through school that took you through grad school and into change management as the work that you were doing. And now as you lay out your career over the years, you've ended up in a number of positions where you're managing teams, you're teaching other people in leadership positions how to do the kind of change management work that you know how to do. Where did you learn how to be a manager, how to manage the work of other people, how to lead other people? I would have to say that I learned it in multiple ways. So I think, at, again, at State Farm, one of the things I loved about that project was the people that I worked with. And even though I, so I was at State Farm, but I worked for a consulting company and our whole change management team for this big project we were on was made up of all consultants and contractors. 
but it was led by an IBM consultant who knew how to do change. She had been doing it for a very long time. And she was in charge of us, but not directly in charge of us because, again, we were all contractors. But the way that she always came to the table was a way that was very genuine at any and every point of time. And so how she dealt with you was never from a standpoint of mandating or a standpoint of this has to be done, do it. It was always from a standpoint of collaboration and working together and what do we need to do? How can I help you? How can you help me sort of say? And so I probably didn't know it at the time, but those examples of how to have a manager and how to work with somebody and how to lead stuck with me. And then when I did become a manager at PwC, I had to lean on that. And I will tell you forwards and backwards, it failed, it, it worked, it failed again, and then it, <laughs> it worked again. <laughs> but it was never, what, what I also had to learn was that it was never the same solution for any two people. And that was the thing that was a learning experience in the moment is being able to deal with people in different ways and giving people what they needed. And again, that took a lot of conversations with peers. That took a lot of working with other managers to figure out what I was doing right and what I was doing wrong. I do think that in a lot of these jobs where people become managers, we assume that because somebody gets promoted, that means that they have the skills, the knowledge, the wherewithal, the everything to support people. And so we don't really provide much training, much on the job experience, much of anything that gets used to do what you actually have been deemed worthy of doing. And so it's a lot of, again, trial by error. And that may feel okay to you, but that doesn't always feel good for the person that you're managing. And so you have to, in a lot of ways, figure out how to be a manager without impeding on somebody else. And I think that was the skills that I learned at PwC. And so like even my career since then, I don't directly manage anybody. Like nobody reports to me which in a lot of ways I love because I don't have to deal with the people part of a lot of people. <laughs> but I do still get to somewhat manage the work and how the work gets done. And I take it, I try to take it from that aspect of how can we work together to help deliver your project? How can I help you to do which, what it is you need to do? And how do I help you to be more successful? Sometimes that is met with a lot of excitement and a lot of, yeah, tell me, help me figure it out. And sometimes it's met with, I got it. Leave me alone. Like, I, I don't need your help. And I have to be big enough to say, okay, like, that's fine. And go on about my day, my life, whatever it is. And so, I don't know. I think there's a lot of skills that I've learned from watching people, from seeing people, from seeing what worked and also seeing what didn't work. Because just as many experiences as I have, of, oh, that was great. Oh, I see what she did. Oh, I love the way he or she manages. I probably have just as many experiences of, please don't ever do that. Please don't ever do that. <laughs> don't be that type of manager. Don't be uh, somebody who is watching over everybody's shoulder, somebody who's dictating, somebody who is 
not easy to work with. I have some. Yeah. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> it's dangerous territory getting into yes, some examples. I hear you. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's fair. I think most people share that experience. Most people don't get trained as managers. Right? Most people do on-the-job training. I mean, you took the words right out of my mouth, right? The prob- one of the many problems with that is that the people who they are responsible for end up being the guinea pigs and end up getting hurt while this individual is learning how to do the things that we, we already have decades of research showing us what those managers should be trained on, right? When they step into that position. And instead, we just, I will stay away from my soapbox on that one. But yeah. No, but I, I think that, so that also becomes very relevant to the job I do. So I tell people that all the time, that when we're doing change management, a lot of times we say, oh, we have this sponsor and we need this sponsor to do this or to do that. Or, oh, we have this leader of this org and we need them to go out and be a vocal change agent and a spokesperson. And you can't assume that everybody comes to the table with the same experience. I don't care if you have a VP, SVP or whatever behind your name. It doesn't mean that you have the skills to do this successfully. And so in order for you to be successful and I need you to be successful for my project, I have to figure out what skills you have and what you don't and how I supplement that. And I think that it is that one-to-one ratio from a change manager to whatever sponsor change agent um, person is taking that individualistic approach that makes it that much more successful. And I think that would be true for anybody who you promote into manager, director, whatever role responsibility that they have and what it is that they need to do. But being in a lot of these big companies, we don't take the time to do that. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you apply the same or a similar approach in the way that you take on each each new person that you work with, right? Whether it's a sponsor or a client or a new change agent that's going to be working with you, right? You do your sort of own assessment and then you, it sounds like instead of telling them what to do, you figure out how to facilitate their own greatness and to help them do what they do best and support them in the places where there are gaps. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that I went to Bowling Green State University for my master's program. And one of the things they taught us and they were trying to teach us how to be consultants. And the big thing that they used to always say was faking until you make it, which being in the program at the time, I was like, what? I'm not faking anything. Like, what? why do I need to fake it if I'm paying you all this money to teach me it? Okay. But I, that's neither here nor there. But what you what I took from that, though, was this idea of sometimes leaders need to fake it until they make it. So how can I help give them the confidence that they need to go and talk about this project or to go and get this other person on board or to go and work with their teams to figure out how we take this pain point and turn it into a solution? And so, again, in the moment of being in that program, I I didn't understand what we were talking about and how it was relatable or transferable. But now being, I don't even know, 15, 20 years outside of that. Yeah, I get it. And I get how it's transferable to other things. And I get, I finally get what they were trying to tell me in the moment. I I could probably find a better way for them to say it, but I get it now. Yeah. And just so we're clear, it's not fake it till you make it on things that are unethical or out of integrity. It's more about like, how do you bolster the people around you? Because if you're working as a team, you have some skills, they have some skills. 
How do you work together so that what you present to the organization is a cohesive and coherent picture, right? Yeah. And it, yeah. it, it was, it's also this idea that when you don't have the answer, it's okay to not have the answers because a simple question may unveil the answers. And sometimes that's exactly what I do to leaders where it's like, well, Tiffany, what do you want me to do? And I turn it right back on them. What do you, what do you think we need to do? What does your organization need? How can we support your organization? Because sometimes I do have the answers, but sometimes I want you to come to the answers on your own. So you feel much more convicted to go and do it. And again, I think that's a lot of that is consulting mentality and how you come to the table and how you get the people who you're working with to come up with solutions. And again, it didn't make sense in the moment, but it makes total sense now. So I guess in that case, I tell myself to listen. Fair. I would offer that, that a lot of what you're describing is what many people would describe as, you know, really solid managerial and leadership skills mm-hmm. for what it's worth. So I'm curious, though, on the other side of the coin, could you share a mistake that you've made in your career? Like one of those moments where you wish that the earth would open up and swallow you whole and uh, what you learned from that experience or how it actually helped you in some way? Yeah, I could share a few. So... I'm trying to decide which one is the best because there's mistakes I've made in terms of how to be a manager at PwC. There's mistakes I've made in terms of not owning my career at Deloitte. And I think that's probably a better version. So when I went back to Deloitte the second time, I had this perception of Deloitte the first time. And when I was a consultant, I really did feel like I was just one of many. And I felt like they didn't know who I was. They just knew that my badge swiped the door when I came in and it swiped it on its, on, on its way out. And I was there to get a certain portion of work done, so to say. And so when I came back, I wanted to make sure that I was in a place that felt like a family, so to say, because that's what I had at State Farm. That's what I had at PwC. And that's essentially what I had at Harvard you, you, for seriously, like. I did. Like everybody at PwC, everybody at State Farm, I really felt like we were a part of this little close-knit family and we took care of one another. Um, And so I tried to make sure that that existed at Deloitte before I went back. And I really felt like it did. Hey, if you're enjoying the show, please make sure to subscribe and join our community at itellmyself.com for updates and info. That's itellmyself.com. Okay, back to the show. So I had this really good manager who really believed in change management and she really believed in the discipline of change management and the need to build it out within the HR space. Unfortunately, after about, I don't know, probably three or four months of being there, she left. And so when she left, it created a gap for me. And because I had only been there for three to four months, I really hadn't gotten to prove myself. And she was the only layer in between me and the chief HR officer. So it wasn't even like there was somebody who could take on the uh, interest that she had in change management. So for about a year, I, I kind of like floated, like I did things and I made an impact, but it wasn't what I wanted it to be or what I had been sold as my role in this place. 
And so that year also happened to be the year before COVID started. And so the moment that COVID happened again, now I'm not in the office at all. I'm not seeing people. I'm not working with people, you know, on a day-to-day basis outside of the projects that I was working on and the things that I was doing. But I'm not able to make a big enough impact for people to see, oh, Tiffany has this thing or this skill set or she'd be good at this or she'd be good at that. And Deloitte is just like PwC from the standpoint of in order to get the next thing, you got to show that you're doing the next thing already. And I, I didn't create the opportunities for me to showcase what it is Deloitte HR needed from a change management and org design perspective and how I could make that happen. And so in the small places where I did do it, a lot of times it was met with, oh, that sounds good, or oh, that tool looks great, or oh, that's good. And I already told you before, I'm not a salesperson. So when you say the but, to me, we're done. And it's like, oh, okay, well, whatever. Like, you don't want it. And I'm, I'm fine with that. But I wasn't fine with that. And so I didn't, I, I felt like I was relegated to a certain space at Deloitte. And there was no opportunity for me to excel and no opportunity for me to be um, what it was I saw for myself. And so I felt very stagnant, for lack of better words. And there were many days where I was like, I should just quit. Like quitting would be better than just coming here every day and doing work that is, for lack of better words, beneath me. Like it's, it's no reason for me to be doing this. It's not adding value to me. And I don't know how much value is adding to this organization. And they supplied me with like the chief HR leader was my, she was my mentor. And I would tell her like what I was experiencing. And she was like, she'll be like, oh, I'm going to try to figure out how I can help you. Or, oh, I'm going to try to figure out if I can talk to the chief HR officer about finding you something else. And I'd be nowhere this job with Abby kind of hit my plate and became this thing I was interested in and this thing I went after. And when I told them that I was leaving, then all of a sudden it became this mad rush for um, people to create opportunities for me within the company. And in most cases, that would probably make people feel good, but it made me feel very minuscule because there were a lot of conversations that I were a part of that I got to see the back ends of things. And I knew that at that moment that I was leaving, what I was doing to them. And I was a double diversity number that you were now losing. So you were losing a woman and a black woman. And so now you were trying to figure out how you could keep me and what experience did I need and what role was going to give me that experience. And it just felt very, it felt very haphazard. And looking back on it, again, there were multiple opportunities for me to have created for myself in Deloitte something else. So whether or not it was looking for a different role or going back to consulting or finding something else that may have been a better fit in some place where I may have felt like people were there to support me and to genuinely support me. Because the whole time I was there after my old boss left, Every person that was responsible for me, I solely felt like they were just responsible for me. I was just a person that they were like, hey, we don't know what to do with Tiffany. You take her. You you get her. You know, figure out what to do with her. And so 
and all the connections I've built throughout my career, that is the one place that I talked to very few people since I left that company because I didn't feel like any of the connections were genuine. And I didn't feel like I, I don't feel like I was set up to succeed. And I feel like that was partially on me, but it was also partially on the leadership within that part of the business. And so that was a rough three years. And the mistake for me was going back to Deloitte and thinking that it would be something different than what it was originally was. The mistake for me was also in not owning and taking responsibility for where I was and trying to create something different of it. And just knowing how consulting is, just knowing the things that I needed to do and what needed to happen. And consulting is very different from a lot of other companies that exist. So you really do have to own your own career and you really do have to network to make anything happen for yourself. And a lot of times what you want is people to see that you're good and to see your value and try to find a place for you. And that's not at all how it happens. Does that make sense? It does. And that sounds like an, I mean, it sounds like a rotten experience on, obviously on several fronts, both because you didn't, I mean, you were there for three years, which is a long time at this point. In today's day and age for anybody to be in a single spot, right? Three years is pretty solid. Um, But to leave on a note where you, feel like they were fighting to keep you for your, not even for who you are as a person, but just for your diversity quota contributions. I mean, that says so much about exactly what you're pointing to in terms of networking and relationships and what wasn't there for you in that space. Yep. I I think the only reason I was there for three years was because the majority of it was COVID. And so we were already working from home. And if I'm absolutely honest, probably doing less work than I was I was doing before COVID. So it was like, well, I'm getting paid and I'm doing something, but I'm not doing anything of substance. And that part didn't feel good. But at that time it was during COVID. And I was like, who's looking for another job during COVID? Like it's a, it's a tough window of time <laughs> to be making any moves. A little uncertainty in the global scale. Yeah. Totally understand. But so let me ask if I go back in terms of what you learned or what you would do differently. Totally get that COVID was a huge factor, but in terms of what you're pointing to around networking and sales and speaking up for yourself or making a case with the people that you work with, it sounds like those are some areas that you would have leaned into more, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would have definitely done a better job of selling or designing change management and probably being a little bit more passionate about those things versus a little uh, less lackadaisical for like I can't think of the right word but I also think that I would do a lot more in terms of actioning and looking outside of where I was because I had my blinders on at the moment I came into this part of the business I came to do this thing and I was dead set on that thing being the thing versus widening out the viewpoint and saying where you back at Deloitte and it's 200,000 people who work here. Like, there's 20 million things to do. Could we not find you something else that is somewhere else that might give you the experience you're looking for? And again, even going back into consulting could have been an opportunity because at that point in time, nobody was traveling. And so I could have been using my skills that would have given me more experience and allowed me to contribute to something. But again, I just was so focused on figure out how to make this work 
And every time I turned around, there was something that was saying it wasn't going to work. Yeah. I'm just kind of accepting that instead of opening different windows, picking different mm-hmm. paths mm-hmm. or leaving. You know, yeah. Again, absent COVID. Totally get that. <laughs> Not dumping ship in that window. And also like going back to, I think sometimes what I forgot in the moment is how important my values were to me and that they are very important when it comes to the place that I work as well. And so again, I want to be someplace where people are genuine, where there's a lot of teamwork, where I'm dependable and other people are dependable. And this is the place where I feel like there are inspirational leaders. And I never took stock of those things in the moment to say, well, you know what, Tiffany, Deloitte is not hitting any of these things for you. So is it this part of the business? Is it the organization in total? What do you need to do to get these things back? And being real with myself to be able to do that. Yeah. Checking in with yourself around your own values alignment and seeing if where you are is really an alignment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry you had that experience, but I'm glad you learned good stuff and landed somewhere that's a better fit. So tell me something on the other end of the sort of spectrum of challenging things. I know in my career, there have been moments where um, whether it was because I made a mistake or whether it was because somebody was just extraordinary and saw something that other people didn't notice, where there was like a, this an unexpected kindness that somehow changed me or my career. Are there any moments that you can think no. of where like... My whole life is unexpected kindness or people seeing the value in me that I didn't actually see in myself. Okay, so I grew up in inner city Detroit and I went to a lot of like selective enrollment schools, schools you have to test into. And that was always the case for me because I always excelled. Again, math and science was of great interest to me. Um, I was always good at school and This has become my story a lot lately because I have a daughter who stutters now. So telling this story of when I was younger in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, I don't think I stopped stuttering until I was in third grade. I used to stutter and I stuttered very strongly to the point where I just wouldn't talk because everybody over talked me or like my sister would get tired of me stuttering and she would say whatever it is she thought it was I wanted to say. And so I became very, I don't know that I was always introverted, but I became very introverted because I just became very much of a loner or very much introspective because I didn't want to talk because I was scared I wasn't going to be able to get my words out. So I was quiet and I was a quiet kid in in elementary school or in middle school. I was not the popular kid. So when I was in elementary school, my science teacher, who also happened to be My grandmother worked at the school as a school lady, so she was one of my grandmother's best friends. She took an interest into me, and she saw how much I liked science. And so when I was at the school after hours, I was always in her classroom doing something with her. And so, again, that was her looking at me and saying, oh, yeah, she's the quiet kid, but she really likes science. Let me give her something to do that might pique her interest or might do something around that. Which, again, she was also the person who told my grandmother and my mom that I needed to test to go to Whitney Young. Like I could go to, it was a middle school in Detroit where you needed to test into. So I tested and I went to Whitney Young. And while I was at Whitney Young, 
I had the, I was in DAPSEP and DAPSEP is this program that is for science and math around Detroit. And so it's like an advanced placement program that you go to on the weekends and after school some days. And so again, I was in this program. I don't remember one person I met because that's how quiet I was. But I remember what we did in DAPSEP and I remember the science fair, the science things and the different things that we got involved in. And so while I was in that, my counselor put me in it. She was like, oh, you need to go to DAPSEP, get in DAPSEP, whatever, right? Okay, cool. And then my eighth grade year, she had me submit for this Horizon Upward Bound program. Again, I'm from the inner city of Detroit. Everybody in my neighborhood is going to the neighborhood high school. At best, they are C, C students. So I'm already like outside of my realm, so to say, doing things that not many of the people would do. Anyhow, I go to this Horizon Upward Brown program. It's a program where over the summers from entering into ninth grade until entering into 12th grade, you spend the summers at uh, a high school. And so it's called Cranbrook in Michigan. And so it's like this private school that kids go and live at during high school. And so we were able to live there over the summers. And basically what they were doing was teaching you how to be a high school student, teaching you how to get into college, teaching you study skills, teaching you the things that you were going to learn in math in the ninth grade. You had that upper leg, so to say. Again, I had no clue what I was getting into. I just know that knew that I was a smart kid and somebody was like, go to this and apply. And so I applied. So kudos to my counselor for being able to say she needs that. And while I was at Horizon Outward Bound, the science teacher took an interest in me and like three other kids. And remember, again, this was at the point in time that I thought I was going to be a doctor. And so science was very important to me. And so this woman took so much of an interest in uh, me and these other two girls that she would bring us to her house on the weekend sometime. We used to spend time with her and her husband. Like she would take us to restaurants. It was just like, she, I don't know, she saw something and she knew that we weren't going to restaurants with our families. They didn't have money like that to take us places. She knew that there were things that we just wouldn't be able to do. Like, so when we came to her house, she would pull out, I'm not going to say the good china, but she would pull out nice plates and we would eat and we would have a formal dinner. And so it was just experiences across the board that different people opened me up to where I was able to learn about life and figure things out and just be in the right places at the right time, which again, it was orchestrated by God, but he put the right people in my path to give me what I needed to get to where I am today. Because there's no way coming from where I came from in Detroit that I should be where I am today. But I am. So it's been a lot of help from people. And I mean, I could keep growing. When I was in Michigan State, I thought I was going to do this one thing. I even thought that I was going to go into industrial organizational psychology. I was going to move to Chicago. I was going to go to Chicago School of Professional Psychology. They gave me a whole full ride scholarship. I was going. Like, I was going to be an IO psychologist. What do you mean? And then get into senior year. And I take this this class that's called org development. And I didn't know what I was taking. It, it just filled my requirements, right? <laughs> so I was like, oh, wait, now this sounds interesting. This actually sounds more interesting than my IO psych class I was in. And so I, I researched and I looked up org development programs. 
I found Case Western. I found Bowling Green. I, for some reason, I applied to Bowling Green. Now, mind you, I had already applied to all these other schools and was a shoe in. And then I, I don't know why I applied to Bowling Green. I don't even know. But then Bowling Green accepted me and they gave me a full ride. And I remember being in that teacher's office, boo-hooing, because I had no clue what to do. Like, it was like a juxtaposition in life. Like, oh, you thought you were going to be an IO psychologist. But what if you go and get a master's in org development? And he was, he probably was like, what's wrong with this girl? And his question to me was, well, what do you want to do, Tiffany? And I was like, I want to be an IO psychologist, but I think org development is really cool. And he was like, well, where do you see yourself? What do you want to do? And same story. I want to wear my business clothes and I want to help people. <laughs> I was probably a little more eloquent, but I gave that that part of the story. And so then he shared with me his viewpoint of where an IO psychology degree would take me and where an org development degree would take me. And I decided to go the org development path because I wanted a path that was really more experience and more in the business. And it had I gone the IO cycle, it would have been a lot more of the research and being on the back in the background and doing those kinds of things. And so again, a, a, a cross at the roads for me, but a choice that helped me go in the right right way. And again, that teacher checked on me all my whole year and a half I was at Bowling Green. How's it going? Do you like it? Is it what you thought it would be? And it I don't know, it was just Again, people just playing their role at the moment. You have a long history of some very kind people seeing what's awesome in you, even before you saw it in yourself. Absolutely. And it sounds like each of those people made a huge difference for you. They did. They did. And so the question for me always becomes, how can you be that for somebody else? And whether or not it's right now I'm mentoring 10 kids who are going to college next year. And so they... I did this program called Chicago Scholars. And so, again, it's really cool to be tied to people at such a young age in life where they are also making very critical decisions about what's right for them, what's not right for them, thinking about value alignment and what you're looking for and the experiences that you're going to get. And just having a thought process behind it. So, yeah, it's thing that always comes back to me is the how do you give back? How do you be that same thing for somebody else, whether it's through something informal or something informal. That's awesome. I'm curious if there's one thing. I mean, that's a lot of kids to be mentoring at once. It's not me by myself, but it's me and two other people. So I'm curious if there's sort of one overarching lesson or like one thing from your own life that you find that you are regularly bringing back to these kids, given where they are in life, that's useful. I think it's the idea of pivoting. Because I think that is true in life. What may be good for you at one point may not be good for you tomorrow. Um, and so being committed to your decision, but not so committed to it that you can't find something else that may work in the moment. And so you can't see it behind me, but behind me on my wall, it says focus on the present moment. I think that is very important to be conscious of where you are and what you're doing but also to be conscious that what you're doing today doesn't have to be what you do tomorrow. And so what you think your major needs to be today might change tomorrow. The, the school that you decide to go to today, 
it might be a fit and it might be a fit for the next two years, but you might find yourself in a different situation come that point and that school may not be a good fit anymore. And if that happens, you don't have to stay committed to that thing. You can find something else that may work. Living in Boston worked for me for four years. And then I had two kids and it was like, it doesn't work anymore. And I had to find something else that that did work or something else that fit my life and fit what I needed. And so for me, it's this idea of pivoting and being willing to make different choices. Yeah, I hear that a lot in your story. And I also hear, I think that like when you pivot, you have to have an access, right? Something that you turn on. And it sounds like what you keep coming back to is a combination of your values and your big vision, right? Well, the lab coat and the business clothes, right? You can get there in a lot of different ways, but right, each of the, the different paths that you took, each of the different choices seems to always come back to circling around like those two things as your sort yeah, of directional compass. Because no door is ever closed forever. And so I saw something the other day, a man that was, I don't even oh, he was a mechanic. And he's in his early 50s and he just became a doctor because that's something that he always wanted to do. But he needed to be a mechanic because of what was going on in his life. And he needed to have a career at that moment. And when he was able to, again, a very weird story, but again, he went after something he wanted and he went after it a lot later. But that door that he thought was closed he opened it up in a different way and he took a different path to get to it. And so I always tell myself that, yeah, I thought I was going to be OBGYN and there's nothing saying that I can't be. Or like, I thought I was going to be Dr. Shorter. And yeah, at 40, I'm not, but there's nothing saying that I can't be. And if I decide that I still want something or that I want that one thing, then figuring out a way to open the door to get that thing. And I, I think it is, it's about pivoting. It's about flexibility. It's about being able to, I don't know, kids teach you a lot about what you have control over and what you don't have control over. And so I think a lot of the things I once thought in my life that I had control over, I'm now realizing that either I don't have control of it or I don't need control of it. And being able to be flexible enough to find the things that I want to have control over and the things that I absolutely need to be present and dealing with those things. I love that. That's such a, it is, I will say from personal experience, such a hard lesson, not just the things that I don't have control over, but the things that maybe I don't need to have control over. Mm-hmm. No, I might still want it. Oh, it's the hardest lesson that me and my therapist have had to go to because she's like, there you go trying to control that thing again. And I'm like, hey, my business. But it's an everyday reminder, like being an alpha female and being that person who wants to do these things and sees yourself in a certain place. And if I'm perfectly honest, I didn't see myself with kids. I didn't see myself being a mother. So being flexible and adaptable to say, Okay, well, you didn't see it, but it's probably the best thing that ever happened to you. How? What you going to do next? Like, how are you going to still get to be where you want to be in life and excel at being a mother? And being able to say, again, life changes. Things, things shift. Things don't always turn out how you thought they would. And being able to say, okay, well, accepting. That's the good word. Accepting where you are, accepting what you have. 
and thinking about what you need to change and what you don't and taking steps to do that. I think that's awesome. But I know when we hang out this conversation, I'm going to go Google how I get a patch made for your lab coat that says, Tiffany Shorter, what you going to do next? I'm really going to ask somebody today, would it be possible to get me a lab coat? I think I need a lab coat. And they're going to be like, for what, Tiffany? Nobody here wears a lab coat. I think I should wear one. Uh, Absolutely. I'm totally on board with you having a lab coat. 100%. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to answer all of my nosy questions today. I think you've had an amazing journey. I didn't know most of this, despite knowing you for a long, a long time. We won't count numbers. Fine. We don't need to count numbers anymore. <laughs> I think I've had a lot of opportunities over the last few years to think about my journey and to think about what's been important from it and what are standout moments. And again, the standout people, the people who did things for me in, in the moment that I didn't know needed to be done. I didn't know I needed to be taught. I watch people. I told you I, I'm quiet and I sit back. And I'm watching what a person says. I'm watching what a person does. I actually told somebody this story the other day uh, about Sonny. And when we were at, at work and we came to work and we were so scared, we were going to get fired. And he, <laughs> and what's going to happen? And we were like, what, wait, what, what do you mean? And he was like, if you get fired, what's going to happen? And we were like, well, then we probably don't have to find another job. And he was like, is that going to be the hardest thing you've ever done in your life? We were like, no, uh, no. And he was like, okay, then go forward and, and basically shut up. Like, <laughs> what you going to do next? <laughs> exactly. And he probably didn't know it at the moment, but that was a life lesson for me. Like, don't sweat the small stuff. If something happens that is ca- catastrophic, that may feel like it's not what you wanted at the moment, then what's the next, what's the next thing? What you going to do next? Like, it's very easy to have a plan of action and to figure out where you go from here. And it pivoting. But okay, that happened. Now what? And I think it's... You know, I have to say, I, I hear that all of these amazing people showed up in your life and they were so generous with you and they saw something in you that maybe you did or didn't realize was there before they saw it, right? But it is so... It's just screaming at me. Like, it is so much to your credit that you are receptive that you are open, right, to receive what they were offering to you in those moments. Because Mm -hmm. I think it's also really easy to turn those things away, especially when people are trying to tell us something that they think is what's best for us. If it's not something that we were specifically looking for in our own path, it's really easy to say, oh, well, they don't know me. That sounds scary. I'm not going to let somebody else set my direction for me in life. But it sounds like you were really open and receptive to all of these amazing opportunities and lessons and whether you listened and followed that path or listened, took a lesson and went in a different direction, right? Like you made the most of what was made available to you. You didn't miss those chances, which is awesome. And is all you. Yeah. I, I, so I won't take the credit for that because I really do believe that our lives are orchestrated and we all have a path and God knows exactly what he wants for me and what, what I am meant to do. And so, yes, I will say that there's a lot of things that I was open to and a lot of things that put me in the right place. But I actually told this story the other day to one of my friends. I was like, do you remember I almost didn't come back to Michigan State after freshman year? And she was like, no. And I said, yeah, I wasn't coming back. Like I had, I had went back to Detroit over the summer and I was hanging out with all of my 
friends who only had a job and wasn't in college and, you know, the people from my neighborhood. And I went and got a job at Motor City Casino and I was a cocktail waitress. And I thought this was a great job. Okay. And so I I was at, at the job and I was like, I don't think I'm going back to Michigan State in the fall. I think I'm going to go to Wayne State. And Wayne State is a local school in Detroit. Now, the DAPSEP program that I went to in middle school was on Wayne State's campus. So I knew Wayne State like the back of my hand because I was in this program and I used to go to the Wayne State libraries. My stepdad, so to say, worked at Wayne State. And so I used to go to Wayne State's campus like every day. I was in the library, the law library, this library. Like I just, I lived there. And so when I went to enroll in Wayne State and I went to orientation, I sat in orientation and I cried because that was not the place that I was supposed to be. And look at me trying to take uh, credit for my life and figuring out what I wanted to do and saying, oh, I can have a job and work and I can work and go to school, too. And I'm going to have some money because I'm tired of being broke and I'm going to be able to go to school. And again, I feel like that was God saying, you know, you ain't supposed to be here. Like this this ain't what you're supposed to be doing. And like it just felt like. You going to Wayne State? Like, what you going to Wayne State for? Like, nothing felt new. Like, everything they said, I was like, I know that already. I already know that. Like, I, I don't want to be here. And I ended up calling my friend, and I was like, go see if my dorm room is still available. I'm coming back to school. And again, had I not gone back to school, had I not gone back to Michigan State, I would have never met that teacher that uh, I went to at Bowling Green. I'd have never met Joe. I didn't meet Joe until my sophomore year. I Like, there were a lot of things that was orchestrated for me that had I stayed there, things would be totally, totally different. And I do believe that my life would be different in the standpoint of I may still be working at Motor City. And I may have felt like that was, hey, I'm making enough money to get by. Because again, for all intents and purposes, it was more than I grew up with. It was more than I had at the moment, but not being able to see the bigger picture. But again, back to the point earlier, value alignment. And making sure that the things you choose are not just good for the moment, but good for what you need and good for what you what's important to you. And of course, being a 20 year old or 19 year old, however old I was, uh, my values at that time are probably much different than they are now. But it being able to take stock and say, is this right? Does this feel good? Does this feel like where you need to be? And when you get the answer, that's no doing something about it. I feel like that's, you know, those are two steps to that, right? And you have to actually be wanting to do something mm-hmm. when you get a clear answer. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll stop picking your brain for now, but I'm sure I'll circle back. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for doing this with me. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed the show and found something to support you wherever you are in your own journey. Don't forget to subscribe where you listen to your podcasts and head over to itellmyself.com to sign up for updates. Until next time, take care.